Welcome to The Edge. Today, we have a special guest in our continuing series on the arc of networking. The goal of this series is explore the history of networking, understand the people, the technologies that have brought us to this intersection between networking and security. We also want to gain insights into the past and what the future holds. And the guest we have today, honestly, has been at the forefront of it all. He's a teacher, an author, co-creator of MPLS, Cisco Fellow, member of the Nasira startup team that eventually became VMware NSX, VMware CTO, and I've also done my research. He's a great runner um, because I do follow him on Strava. His PR in the marathon is 245. And he's personally one of my favorite industry people because every time I talk with him, he blows my mind. Bruce Davey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much. Uh, you've pumped my tires up very nicely there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do follow you on Strava, so I, I, I know and I'm uh, honestly uh, very jealous because the weather there is nice uh, and it's just been raining and gray in Portland and uh, uh, Jay has been listening to me whine and bitch and moan about the weather here uh, because all I've been doing is riding inside and uh, I, I need some sun. So, <laughs> uh, but hey, let's uh, let's move on to the topic of the, pod the podcast, uh, networking. Uh, we're seeing fundamental shifts in uh, both networking and security due to the emergence of obviously the global internet, uh, cloud resources. But I want to kind of go back because you were at this moment of creation of software-defined networking, and it, 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 is, it is a game changer and has been, has a huge impact on the industry. But in my humble opinion, that impact oftentimes for the, the person on the front lines a bit understated. So can you kind of walk us through the, the whys and the hows of SDN, how it came about, why it was needed? Let's kind of dive into a little bit of the history here. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I started paying attention to SDN about 2009, uh, where you know the, the folks from Stanford, led by Nick McEwen in particular, were spending a lot of time talking about it at academic conferences. And initially, I thought it was really about trying to sort of uh, disrupt what the big incumbents like Cisco were doing by trying to tease apart the hardware and the software so that you know it could be more disaggregated and you could have a, a richer ecosystem of players. Um, and I mean, that's I guess that continues to be one of the the hopes for SDN. But you know, in the end, the the technology that where or the the use case where SDN really took off initially was at Nasira, where I went to work. And you know, over the course of those few years, from first hearing about OpenFlow in about two thousand and nine to uh, to actually jumping ship and going to work for Nasira in uh, two thousand and twelve, you know, what became clear was that. There was a specific problem in networking, which was really about manageability, and 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 the the thing that the folks at Nasira figured out was that with the rise of cloud data centers, automation for networking was going to be absolutely key, and that we could automate lots of aspects of provisioning virtual machines, for example, could be done. Very in a very highly automated way, but networking was becoming the real pain point where it might take four weeks or more to provision the network where you, you could spin up the VMs in a couple of minutes, but to get them connected to each other, to get them connected to the internet, to put in place firewall rules, all of those things were still quite manual. And so networking became this big pain point. And the, other, the problem that Nasira went after and used SDN to tackle was how do you make it easy to automate that network provisioning task? And the key to this, which was maybe not the most obvious thing about SDN, was that SDN brought in, into play these central or logically centralized points of control, the, the sort of the centralized controller, which maybe if I just go on a small derogation, it was one of the reasons why we thought it was a terrible idea at Cisco. We thought central control, everybody knows that doesn't work. Um, and the, every, anytime somebody tells you everybody knows something, that might be a sign that you should dig in a little bit deeper. Um, and so, you know, what happened at, at Nasira was we, we used centralized control to crack this nut of how do you make it easier to provision networks automatically? And the key point here was that once you had the central point of control, you could put an API on it and you could have a piece of software do the provisioning instead of a, instead of a human. And so the, you know, these networks are big, complicated, distributed things. They're connecting up in, in the case of what we did at Nasira, we were connecting virtual machines spread across a data center. The virtual machines could move 
from one machine to another in, in physical space. So you know, provisioning those networks was complicated, but if we had a central point of control that exposed an API, then we could use software to do that provisioning. And that was the, the key to automating it. And ultimately that was the, the, you know, the initial use case that got SDN off the ground was central control gives you a, a big shift in how you manage networks to a place where it can be managed in a much more automated way with software doing the provisioning rather than humans. How did that go down with people? Because, and maybe John, that's where you were going with your next question, but like, in theory, you were making people's lives easier, but actually, how did the networking folk actually take it is my question. Yeah, that's a great question. And so, I mean, the short summary is we figured out that we were going to do better if we didn't talk to networking people. Um, and so <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we had this sort of... Uh, approach that we was kind of our initial way of inserting ourselves into these data centers was find the people who ran the servers and see if we could sell them on the idea of having automatically provisioned networks. Um, now, to be fair, there were networking people who saw this as a really positive development, um, but there were also networking people who said, wait, I've spent decades becoming the expert in CLI configuration. Are you telling me that that's no longer necessary? Um, and you can imagine that's very threatening. And so you could really divide people up into two camps. There were those who said, well, you know, it was always intended that networking should be done by highly trained, well-paid well professionals hacking away at the CLI. And there are other people who said, well, obviously, if we could do it automatically, that would be fantastic. It's faster. It's, um, you know, it's less of a pain for the rest of the organization. Uh, it's more accurate, more repeatable, all of those things. You could see the benefits, but not everybody wanted to see them. So, you know, we, uh, we did actually have a lot more success initially by going and talking to people who were not traditional networking folks and saying, hey, would you like your network to be automated? And they're like, you know, I don't have to wait for the networking team. Sure, that sounds great. And so that's how we got our, our initial points of entry. Yeah, because I, I mean, IT people, uh, we've been in the industry a long time and, and we don't like change. I mean, it, it, you've got the people that are kind of, pro technology and, and want to look at innovation. And I would class myself as one of those people. And I think John's one of those people. So certainly when VMware came along, I remember sitting down with, a, with the server and the network team and saying, this is going to make your lives easier. And, and all they could see was, this is going to make my job redundant. Mm -hmm. And actually, it didn't really make anybody redundant. It, it yeah. just it did fundamentally make people's lives easier. Yeah. Um, but anyway, John, I'm sure you were going to add something. No, I mean, that was exactly the question I, where I was headed. I, I still, in 2023, I'm out there talking with networking folks. They're still talking about packets and switches and routers and hardware because we love our hardware, right? Um, it, it just, I, it's still a challenge. It, it's crazy, but, you know, this technology has been out there for uh, more than a decade now. I mean, my first uh, dive into it was, I think, 2013 at at uh, VMworld and, um you know, it's still still a challenge. People still are thinking about routing and switching, and and that's where they want to be. And when you talk to them about you know, SASE, SSE, they have no idea what you're talking about. It's it's a it's a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, as kind of looking back on the the VMware NSX Nasir years, um, how did that conversation go when you had the the networking folks that were resistant? Um, and didn't want to get into uh, software programming. I mean, these these computer science tech policy or conversations around policy, around APIs. Um, any 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 hints? Any unlocks there? Yeah, I mean, as I say, we we, we did uh, we did have this one one approach, which was just go around the networking team. Of course, eventually, if you want to be successful with a big uh, organization, you need to get the networking team on board, and so. Uh, yeah, one of the one of the sort of pathways to success for us would be when you had an organization with a visionary leader who really wanted to change the way they delivered value to the to the company as a whole. They would bring along the networking people with them. So I think um, Greg Lavender was one of the, the the guys who was ultimately came to work at VMware, but he was the I think really the cloud architect at, at Citigroup, and he. Uh, had this vision of, you know, we're in the business to, of delivering a reliable, 
repeatable, um, highly available, highly automated cloud service to the business. And that's our metric of success. So it's not a matter of like, how many boxes did you configure? It's like, did you deliver the cloud service that the company, which is really a bank, you know, they don't need boxes configured, they need a service. And so having somebody like that set the agenda for what was really a, you know, a cloud infrastructure team that that was very successful. And so he had fantastic networking people who saw that their, their, their metric for success is you know, how quickly can we provision things? How reliable is, is, is our overall network offering? And then, so they just had a different set of metrics and, and those folks came along and saw the value of having, you know, SDN as, as one of the tools to make them more valuable to the organization. I think that's a really good way of getting new technologies in a business is, is change what the, like the motivational factors change those metrics. So instead of measuring people on, I don't know, like delivering a network, so a key one there, if you can deliver it faster, maybe that affects your bonus. That's motivates people. They can be freed up to do other things. I mean, we've talked before with John Kinderweg and one of the things he said about zero trust was, it's happening now because they've changed the motivational factors in those metrics. So I think it's a, a really good way to get technology delivered. And as, as you said, the network team are still pretty fundamental in, in, in almost every company. I mean, their job may have changed over the years. Maybe they're no longer kind of CLI and plugging in at the back of the switch and configuring, but it's we, we, everything's still connected and will still continue to be connected, even if it's just in a slightly different way. Yeah, and I think that there was this uh, there was this long held position that the network was so critical that the one thing you had to be absolutely sure of was it never went down, and so if you had to sort of turn a knob between speed and reliability, you'd always turn it towards reliability, and that's why it would take weeks and weeks to get any kind of network change done, was because you would only do it at you know two a.m. on Sunday when you could have a change window. And so, you know, if you wanted to get something done, best case, it was going to be a week, to, you know, before it happened. And maybe you didn't make that change window. So it was a few weeks. And if there were multiple changes, they stacked up behind each other. And so that turning the knob all the way towards it must never go down was that was the old metric of success for networks. Whereas once you get into a cloud system, it's like, well, I'm sorry, my VMs were provisioned 30 seconds later after I pushed the go button. Are you telling me I now have to wait four weeks before I get a firewall rule in place? And, and so, you're changing that metric of, well, actually it needs to go as fast as the VM provisioning. Well, now you say, okay, well, how can I do that in a way that's reliable? I guess I need to look at something different than what I've done in the past. And that I think was the sort of shift in thinking that brought a good number of the networking teams along. Um, I certainly remember being brought in to sort of sales situations where the, the company as a whole had decided they wanted to go with, with network virtualization, but we had to get the networking team to, buy, to sort of buy into it. Because in many cases, they could keep on doing what they'd always done, keep those physical switches and routers and firewalls up and running and keep them reliable. We just want to run this overlay on it. And, and you, so you had to at least get the networking team to not be a blocker. Maybe you didn't always need to get them to change the way they operated, but you needed to get them to accept that having some networking function running in software over the top of their physical infrastructure was a good idea. So that was one of my sort of specialties was, you know, old, old school networking guy comes in to talk to the other old school networking people to help them get over the hump of seeing why it's a good idea for the company. So you mentioned, you mentioned speed reliability, but what about security? Mm. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about zero trust on this show. I know you wrote this last year. Uh, I said, in fact, the term zero trust talking about this goes back to at least 2019 when it was coined by Forrester analyst John Kinderbach. But it's possible to draw a line all the way back to 1975. Uh, Sulcer and Schroeder said every program, every user of a system should operate in the least set of privileges necessary to complete a job. 1975. Here we are in 2023. <laughs> We're just starting to figure out what zero trust is. You know, it's not a product; it's a strategy. Uh, but in terms of cybersecurity, and I'm, I'm moving ahead here a little bit, um, is there hope? Are, are, are we going to, you know, is it time indefinite to to worry about attacks similar to ransomware, uh, or do you see this opportunity to kind of start to insert security into the process? Of networking. Yeah, I mean, that was the big breakthrough for us when, when once we'd gone to VMware and, and started with NSX, we realized this thing about being able to automatically provision networks 
wasn't just a way that you could go faster to do the things you'd always done, but you could actually do things you hadn't done before. And so, you know, we've we effectively created this concept of micro segmentation where, you know, it was effectively free to produce thousands of little tiny networks that were isolated from each other with very finely crafted firewall rules for, you know, effectively you could have a firewall rule that specified the communication between any pair of VMs. So you could do things that were more complicated and at a greater scale than you'd ever done before in terms of security. And all of a sudden that changed the way we thought about how you did security, particularly within the data center initially. Um, and so that's you know, where we, we sort of started drafting behind the, the forest idea of zero trust. Um, yeah, I can't try to remember what, what year that was first coined, but we started using the term zero trust around the time we started doing micro segmentation, which was I think 2014, 2015. Um, and it was uh, my colleague, Tom Korn, who went back to the, the classic uh, Schroeder and Salter paper and pulled that out. Um, but yeah, that idea of zero trust, it really does go back to early operating system ideas from the seventies. And uh, you know, effectively SDN was, was the tool that let us bring zero trust into networking. And uh, I know one of the things I found a bit frustrating was people kind of didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what zero trust meant. And you know, it's not that you trust nothing. Um, and I had some other term that I came up with, but it was much less catchy. Um, you know, something like uh, sort of, you know, it was along that line of the least amount of trust that you can get away with was kind of the thing. It's not exactly zero trust. It's just you, you want to effectively assume that almost anything in your system could be compromised. So how do you limit the blast radius to the smallest amount possible? Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the stories that we hear about that, you know, they continue to come up and, um, just one that was was local here in Australia was about a, um, a, a health insurance company that had huge amounts of patient data uh, stolen and put up for, for sale. And it was one of these situations where a person had a credential to get into into one machine. That user got got you know, um, fished, and so uh, a hacker got access to that credential. But instead of only getting access to the things that that person had access to, they got access to everything that the, that the company had in their systems because there was this, you know, kind of crunchy outside, soft, chewy center of the old way of doing security. There was no kind of internal boundaries between different systems. And that was really what we were going after with Zero Trust was that you have to say, assume that everything is at risk of getting compromised put as many little barriers in place as you can to make it hard for a person who cracks into one part of the system to move seamlessly across into all the other systems. And, and I think that's uh, my impression is that adoption of that is way behind where it should be. And you know, it's, it's one of those things, it's, it's really recommended just basic hygiene these days to do some kind of zero trust, but it is, is sadly still lacking in adoption. So in, in preparation for this podcast, I did a little bit of stalking of you on LinkedIn. And when I saw that you worked at VMware, I was reminded that you'd worked at VMware. It, it's more or less how I got to where I am today was going to either a VM world or going to VMware in Slough in the UK and somebody telling me about this micro segmentation platform that had been developed and how it would protect against like insider threat. And I thought, this is really quite clever. This is like, we trust everyone on our network. And I'd always been nervous about it. I'd, I'd been nervous for many, many years when people would click on an email and suddenly it would go everywhere and it would blast all the file servers or the printers would be streaming off loads of crap. And I, I remember thinking, this is going to be the way the future kind of should look. This is how I need to change. This is, we need to move away from these flat kind of MPLS networks and letting everyone go everywhere in that kind of soft center. I never knew it was called zero trust. I mean, at the time I knew it was called micro segmentation. And then obviously ZTNA kind of came along and was, was a new buzzword. And, 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 and now I think about it, I'm like, that's the seed that kind of grew to what it is today for me without really realizing it. I mean, I went on a journey without knowing anything about zero trust it was only when we really first started this podcast that we went out and asked kind of john kinderbags of this world where did it come from that i remember thinking i've more or less been trying to do this without knowing it was called zero trust but obviously at the time you you knew you knew it was called zero trust but vmware that i was speaking to we're calling it micro segmentation i just remember thinking 
we need to start doing this, putting these little firewalls around each user, each application. And when I was shown that you can do this for servers, it blew my mind. It was, I've had kind of not that many light bulb moments in my IT career that one of them was being shown vMotion and seeing this machine go from one kind of bit of hardware to another. And they, I think they were running SQL and they were showing it constantly running and then it was when they showed me the micro segmentation i was like these are light bulb moments and you don't get them very often um, but anyway yeah, I mean, John, micro, I, micro segmentation was the thing which caused nsx to go from having a few dozen customers to having you know thousands uh it, it sort of went from being something that a very big sophisticated visionary organization could adopt to something that almost everybody could adopt um, and and the, the use case was clear, the, the complexity was relatively low, you didn't need to have a cloud management platform, you just needed to say, oh, I would actually like to be a little bit more secure, and this is a thing I can deploy that will get me there. Yeah, because we, we were shown it and we adopted it. John, did you adopt it as well? We did, yeah, and that's how I know Bruce is uh, was one of those visionary people out on the forefront. So, um, yeah, that that's that's uh, another a story for another day. But um, one of the challenges we had was um, how do we how do we retrofit our organizations with uh, the micro segmentation? Because when I would introduce it to the application team, they'd be like, "Cool technology, uh, but I'm not going to give you a change window to put it in place because all the <laughs> testing involved, all blah 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 blah." Uh, we found it very useful for greenfield deployments, but it was those already established applications, and yeah. I think that's the piece that was missed. Um, you know, in thinking about zero trust and, and thinking about it as a strategy at the time, we really didn't have that awareness. And um, I think we could have done a better job if we would have known, hey, this is a strategy. This is a way to overcome some of these these security challenges that we're dealing with and, and get the application team on board. Because, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, an organization in Australia that that, that got hit. Uh, and, and we see it even today, uh, you know, in the news about uh, the Department of Defense and, and some of the uh, plans for for Ukraine and some of the intelligence, uh, come to find out it's a low-level person, you know, just a few years uh, in the military, 21-year-old, uh, and he puts it on his Discord server. I mean, like, come yeah. on. Yeah. And, uh, and again, you sort of, you do ask yourself, like, why did that individual have access to so much information? I mean, yeah. it's it's almost it's a bit more maybe high level than what we're talking about, but it does sort of think, well, you know, don't they don't they have this idea of compartmentalization of information? Um, so yeah, that was uh, that's that's a that, that's a very very current story that I did sort of think about. Somebody was saying, well, this tells you everything we've done in cybersecurity has been a failure, and it's like, no, I actually think it just probably tells you that their practices were maybe not quite up to scratch there. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, it's this classic situation where you've got a, a person in an organization that let's say they're in HR uh, and they move to finance and then eventually they move to IT. They keep inheriting permissions and instead of going back to you know base, you know, HR user should have this level of permissions. The finance person should have this level of permissions in IT. They just accumulated these permissions and over time, hey, they had a lot of access. Um, I, I think that's that's the other challenge outside of the networking um, piece. Um, I think it actually gets a little bit more complicated than that because it wasn't that long ago, a company that I was working for sent me out to look at a, an acquisition and I sat down on the network and I did normal due diligence and figured out that everyone was a domain admin. And I remember saying to the local IT support company, why is everyone a domain admin? Oh, we had some problems and it was the only way we could get things working sufficiently. And I'm like, mm, that worries me. It wasn't that long ago. We're only talking a few years. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how much kind of security you wrap around stuff. If everyone's got full rights to everything in your domain, you're, you're, you're asking for trouble, really. Yeah, so, I mean, there was a point I, I was going to bring up a, a while ago when you were talking about how you heard these terms, micro-segmentation and zero trust. I think zero trust is a very big overarching sort of architectural approach that sort of tackles every layer of your system from, you know, password management down to, you know, low level networking stuff. Whereas micro segmentation was a bit of mechanism that we were able to deliver that, you know, tackled effectively VM to VM and VM to host communication. And, and I think the, you need a lot, you need more tools in your toolkit than just micro segmentation. You know, much as we would have loved to say, oh, we're going to solve all your security problems with this tool. Yeah. Like the fact is it was one thing in the toolbox. It, it all starts with the foundations, right? If your foundations aren't right and you're not following the fundamentals, 
you can layer on as much security as you want on the top. And, and like you said with micro-segmentation, it's brilliant for keeping server communication to a minimum. But if you've got people communicating with permissions that they shouldn't have, it's not going to know that. That's right. But it, it's it's you can only lock it down as much as you can lock it down based on the on your foundations. And and we talk about this a lot. It's it's getting that right is is critical. So. Yeah, it's, it's a big issue. So let's get into Sassy. Um, you know, we when we last spoke, uh, gosh, when uh, years ago, uh, SD WAN was like this this huge technology shift, and uh, it was this hottest technology. I think there was at some point maybe fifty startups in the space. Uh, now, you know, we've seen this uh, fifty startups now become maybe five or six. Um, SD WAN isn't talked about as much. It's all about SASE. It's all about SSE. Um, Give me some thoughts on 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 where do you see this technology going? Uh, what are the kind of the key points of of SASE and SSE? How did it kind of evolve? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a great story for me actually because you know I worked on MPLS and uh, you know, MPLS was pretty successful precisely because it gave us a better way of doing wide area networking for enterprises, and it you know became a probably multi billion dollar industry. Um, both for router vendors and for the, the ISPs that uh, the telcos that rolled out MPLS-based VPNs. And so, you know, somewhere around 2014 or so, after I'd been at, at VMware a little while, one of my colleagues told me that he was leaving to go to this startup company and the startup was going to effectively apply the ideas of SDN to the WAN. And, you know, he didn't need to explain it for more than about 30 seconds before I realized what a great idea it was because, you know, we'd already shown how you could build a network inside a data center with logically centralized control and all the benefits of that. And, you know, one thing I knew about MPLS VPNs was we, we came from that world that said, thou shalt not have logically centralized control. And, uh, and so it, once you free yourself from that way of thinking, you say, oh, actually logically centralized control is exactly what you want for configuring an enterprise WAN. And so even though I didn't know the details of how they were building it, it looked like a brilliant idea to say, yeah, let's take the ideas of SDN. You've still got to have distributed forwarding out at all of those branch offices, but you can specify your policies centrally and then have the sort of SDN uh, magic, if you like, the, you know, the SDN control plane sits between your logically centralized controller and that distributed forwarding implementation and makes all the right things happen. And uh, so it looked like a great idea. And um, you know, that, that person went off to, to Viptello, which was one of the pretty successful uh, SD-WAN startups. And, um, and then, you know, over the next couple of years um, at VMware, I think I met with every major SD-WAN startup because it was obvious to us at VMware that that was an adjacent industry to the one that we were already in. Um, and of course, we ended up uh, get, you know, getting um, into the investment and the final acquisition of uh, VeloCloud. And so, uh, you know, so, so that was how I saw it. It's like, oh, it's just, if you, you know, if you looked at why was MPLS successful, it was better than the alternatives at the time where the primary alternative at the time was Frame Relay. Then you add another 15, 20 years of, of R&D well, putting logically centralized control on top of it and freeing yourself from the, the, the constraints of MPLS because MPLS was only really ever effective if you could get a circuit from that a single telco to every branch. Like yeah. the you know, inter-carrier inter MPLS, it was technically possible, but it was not you know, anything that was really that successful. Um, so the idea that you could get all the, the kind of manageability benefits of SDN, and then also free yourself from having to have every, you know, every branch connected to the same telco. Uh, you know, that was, that was a huge win right there. But, you know, so that's, the, that's how we got to SD-WAN. The, the interesting thing about all of that was it, it did change where is the network edge. And, uh, you know, one of the things about MPLS that we were really proud of was that you could have every branch talking to every branch um, and you didn't have to sort of backhaul everything into a central location the way it would have previously been done with Frame Relay. With MPLS, you could have direct branch to branch connectivity. So that seemed like a good idea. But there was still a sense that everything was inside the enterprise as long as it was on the MPLS network. 
it was it was there was this very clear inside and outside of the network. If you were on the MPLS network, you were inside the network. And if you wanted to get out onto the internet, you didn't do it from the branch. You did it through some centrally managed sort of portal to the internet through some big corporate headquarters or data center. So the edge where you connected your enterprise to the rest of the world was still a very well-defined point in some big central data center. But when SD-WAN came about, one of the things that was great was all of these branches were getting their WAN connectivity over the internet. And so now you've effectively pushed that edge out to every branch. And every branch has now got an internet connection and a connection to the enterprise WAN. And unless you do something clever, that is now a, a place where bad stuff can come out of the off the internet and into your enterprise WAN. And so you'd better be putting some security features at that edge. So it was almost an inevitable progression that once you had this idea of SD-WAN, where every enterprise could connect to your WAN using just a plain old internet connection, you had to have security features at those branch locations, which you could have got away without having them back in the, the MPLS days. And, and that's where I think we went from SD-WAN to SASE was, well, this edge is now extremely distributed, so you'd better have security services at that distributed edge. Yeah, so I've got, sorry, now you go first. John. No, no, I was, I was just going to add in there. Um, then you got the rise of the branch of one uh, with remote work in you know, 2020 uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, and, and again, you know, you're spreading that risk out even greater and greater and greater. Uh, and the challenge for me, at least, uh, as I saw it, was where you insert your security. Is it, you know, similar to what you would do with MPLS, send the data back to the data center, have it scrub there, uh, drop a firewall at every location with the branch of one that becomes very expensive. Uh, so, you know, SASE starts to make a lot of sense, push the security out to a pop and, and have it, uh, you know, processed as close to the user to the endpoint as possible. Yeah, exactly. So, so my question is a bit of a convoluted one. Um, for me, the SASE framework obviously is SD-WAN and SSE combined. In my mind, SSE only really deals with kind of secure web gateway and ZTNA. And I won't get into the definition of ZTNA because it changes depending on what you Google, but let's refer to it as remote access replacement. Do you see it growing and encompassing microsegmentation as well? Do you see there being a need for when users like us that are currently at home go into an office, we are protected in the same way as we would be at home? Because at the moment, the framework kind of just deals with internet access from the branch and zero trust application access when you're at home. It doesn't really, in my mind, deal with zero trust application access on-prem. Do you think that's coming? Do you think that's needed? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, my high level view of this would be zero trust is table stakes for modern security. And so at some level you need to be thinking about how does how does my zero trust architecture get implemented in this, this new world? Um, and I don't think it's necessarily the case that it has to be done through, through SASE, but it has to be done somehow. Um, so again, you kind of have to assume that every user sitting at home is running a potentially compromised machine. And so you have to be thinking about how do you protect against against that threat. And um, so, you know, one of the other technologies that we you know, had in this stable of, of technologies at, at VMware was the uh, was the Workspace ONE portfolio, which effectively said, you know, you can get access from any device to any application that, that the enterprise offers, but it will be done in a way that limits the 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 risk of having that you know access from that end user device and you know so there's things like sort of agents running inside your phone that make sure that you can't you know sort of have data leaking from one app to another for example so there's a there's a i think a bigger tool kit here than just sassy and sd-wan but but again my high level guidance 
you know, is you definitely need to be thinking about how do I get zero trust? It, micro segmentation may or may not be part of that story. Um, I know when we were working with with John um, and he was looking at how to roll this out into his retail environments, um, we did have this idea that maybe you would have like four different segments within a branch and then the, the SD-WAN gateway would map those onto different micro segments within the, the corporate network. Um, and John, you, you may be able to tell us whether that ever played out, but I think that was that to me seemed like you've, you've got to work with the tools you have. And that seemed like what we had at the time. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea was basically to extend those segments all the way back to the data center. So, uh, for instance, if you had a, a retail PCI segment, uh, we would build that out, run it all the way back to the data center, do it in a micro-segmentation way. Um, and um, I, I think the idea, it was very forward at the time, uh, but it, it, uh, it didn't play out because the challenges of dealing with multiple vendors. So on one point, we had a company, Cloudgenics. We had Palo Alto involved. Uh, at the time, they had not purchased <laughs> Cloudgenics. Uh, and then we had VMware on the top of it. Um, and I think the interesting fact is to do that today would be much easier than it was yeah. uh, back when we were trying to make it happen. Uh, at the end of the day, we had to go back to hardware boxes. Uh, it was a successful implementation. Um, you know, it, it was one of those things that we were at the forefront of things and, and trying new ideas, uh, being that pioneer uh, spirit that we imbibed at Columbia Sportswear. Uh, but it does lead me to a question. Um, you know, SASE in itself, if we kind of look at the technologies, we're seeing this consolidation, you know, SD-WAN, uh, SWIG, uh, CASB, DLP, so on and so forth. Uh, the value proposition for the customer is that it all comes from one vendor, uh, one platform. Um, but we all know that on the other side of the coin, um, if we do that and, and we start to close that in into a walled garden, um, the industry starts to slow down. Innovation starts to slow down because um, you know companies are out to make a profit. Uh, they want to lock in your customers. That's the name of the game of SaaS. Uh, you, want to, you don't want to have a lot of churn of your customers. Um, we talked with Jeremiah again, uh, who's from AT&T. He's involved with MEF. And they're looking at open standards for SASE. Um, how do we kind of balance between, you know, the, the, the need for the customer to have a single vendor uh, or maybe two vendors uh, that are tightly coupled, uh, but also allow for innovation, allow for openness in terms of standards so we can keep continue to move the industry forward and continue to add value. Any any thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I mean, I, I gave up a fair bit of my life to working on internet standards um, and uh, that's why most of my hair is gray now. Uh, but I, uh, I think um, that it is, it is really important to be able to mix and match vendors. And I think it's one of the areas where SDN has struggled because the the challenges of building an SDN system, even for a single vendor, were pretty substantial. And I think you know when we were at Nasira, we thought, wow, you know, what are the odds you'll ever get you know a controller from company A working successfully with a, a virtual switch from company B? Um, and you know that that's a very tight coupling between the the control plane and the data plane. That's it's hard to crack that open. And so. While in principle, you could imagine having this nice set of open standards for how controllers talk to the data plane um, hasn't really played out. So I think the it's, it's, it's absolutely the case that you need to have multiple vendors to, to keep on fostering innovation. And I think that's, that's not a controversial position. You know, when we worked on MPLS, as soon as we started talking to customers about um, VPNs, the first thing they would say is, okay, well, when are you going to standardize that? Because well, there's no way we're buying that solution if the only vendor implementing it is Cisco. Um, so, you know, fortunately, uh, we, we were able to, in those days, to get things to go fairly quickly at the IETF and, and we could get, um, you know, particularly Juniper was, you know, very good at, at um, you know, working with us. You know, we developed standards with them jointly. We, you know, did interoperability tests together. So we very quickly got two vendors implementing a lot of those things. Um, and over time, that, that expanded. So I, I think it, we're probably still in the early stages with um, with SASE, but overall, I would say the consolidation and the, and if a vendor says, well, it's going to work best if you get it all from me, the answer to that was, well, yes, obviously it works better for you that way, um, but it's not necessarily best for the industry. And you know, we need ways to plug in uh, functionality from other vendors. I I think 
you know, things like, you know, picking your, you know, your WAF from one vendor and your DLP from another vendor, like that shouldn't be that hard. I think the chances you'll get your controller from one vendor and your data plane from another, maybe that's a bit harder, but, you know, at least having standardized ways of plugging in a range of different security functions, um, hopefully that's not, not out of reach. One of the value propositions I always saw out of uh, Software Defined was the ability for northbound APIs. So to hook into something like a ServiceNow or uh, you know a UCAS, um, you know technologies like that, or even you know a chatbot to make it easy on operational side. Um, are you seeing a lot of that, or is that just you know John thinking ahead in the, into the future? Um, are you seeing some value there? Because to me, you know, being able to program the network based on an application uh, has a tremendous amount of value. Yeah, honestly, I, I think that that's been pretty well established from the early days. Um, and I mean, when we were at, at Nasira, you know, we, we didn't have the resources to do a cloud management platform. So we, we, you know, we exposed a northbound API and then we went and worked with the OpenStack community to build the, the, the cloud management platform that could call that API. Um, so that there was at least one thing out there that people could use, but you know, people plugged that northbound API into a lot of different systems. Um, it was actually one of the things I think you know, Nasira brought that sort of API first mentality into VMware. Um, I think there was a bit of a shock to us when we when we came in. It's like, what do you mean you do it with a GUI? <laughs> like, obviously, it's better to do it with an API. Um, so, so I, I think that that has actually been a, a reasonably a successful outcome, at least for the sort of SDN systems that I was involved in. Um, and uh, just another example, you know, I've been working on the Magma project lately, which is a, uh, it's really an application of SDN to mobile networking. And uh, Magma also exposes a northbound API, which is very well used and lets it plug into operation support systems for, for telcos, but also lets it plug into, uh, you know, metrics monitoring and, and, you know, graphical displays and so on. So, yeah, I think those northbound APIs in the SDN world are alive and well. Yeah, I, for me, that's a very interesting iteration of, of being able to liaise with other products because that, for me, we, we talk about kind of best in read, and, and that was one of the things that many IT teams have done over the years and still do now. They go to best in breed and they just look on the Gartner Magic Quadrant and they tick off the, the top three things. I always used to try and go to... The, a limited number of vendors because I wanted kind of that one throat to choke. And there was always this kind of balance of it needs to do at least 80 or 85% of what I need. And I'll take it from the same vendor. Once you start getting to down to like the seventies or fifties, I'm like, no, I'm going to have to go somewhere else because it's, it's quite well known that some companies are really, really good at certain things. They go out and buy another product they try and bolt it on and it doesn't necessarily work as well as going best in breed. And in some cases you can, you can do that. You don't necessarily need the best, but I think when it comes to security, you need to be very careful that it does do what you need it to do because 80% security is probably not going to be enough. Yeah. Yeah, I think the other piece uh, that we tried to do is is create a modular approach to it. So um, to reduce it, one of the value propositions for me of SD-WAN was uh, reducing the vendor lock-in. So it, traditionally, you know, back in the 2000s, uh, you would go to market with AT&T, you'd buy your three-year three, three -year contract of MPLS, you'd go buy your routers from Cisco, so on and so forth. Uh, but you knew that the next time you either refresh these routers or you had a conversation with AT&T, you may have gotten a savings, it sort of worked <laughs> out, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the routers, you know, you got a new CPU, congratulations, uh, there weren't a lot of new features. Uh, but uh, this transition over to SD-WAN, um, it unlocked the, you know, the power of software and you were gaining new capabilities, new features on a, a level, uh, sometimes even on a monthly basis, uh, you would get something from the vendor and you're like, hey, this 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 thing has value. Or uh, you, you needed a new feature to complete a project and oh my gosh, there it is. Um, that was that was pretty outstanding, but you also wanted to protect yourself and not put yourself in a situation where similar to AT&T, you know, three years, 
okay, we got a little bit of savings and not a lot uh, compared to the price of bandwidth on the internet. It just kept on declining, declining, declining. And um, that's kind of how we built ours is basically in this modular approach. So if, if the SD-WAN vendor wasn't working out, we could swap them out. If the internet was not working out or the, the, the internet bandwidth was not working out, it was, you know, transition AT&T uh, over to, at the time, it was, I think it was Quest or whatever they're calling it, CenturyLink, they're calling themselves. No, Lumen, they've gone through so many name changes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or it was 5G. Uh, that was the real power there is, is taking the, taking, uh, putting that the power back into your hands instead of the vendor um, modular approach was kind of the, the yeah, approach. plug and play plug and play exactly yeah so. yeah and i mean and i think i mean this is this is sort of i think fairly basic economics right that you you know as as long as there's the, you've got a monopoly situation it, it doesn't doesn't foster competition yeah and you know while mpls was never strictly speaking a monopoly it was it was definitely a small number of players both in terms of the router vendors and the telcos that could offer it in any given geography. Um, and, you know, if you wanted a global MPLS VPN, you could really count the vendors on the fingers of one hand. And so uh, that was, the, I think, the brilliant thing about, about SD-WAN. And, and, you know, it goes back to what we were thinking about in the early days of MPLS. You know, in, in, in those days, you could go and buy frame relay circuits from AT&T to build your, your uh, VPN, or you could have gone and built IPsec tunnels you know, between routers that you deployed into every location. The reason no, almost nobody did the IPsec tunnel based thing was because how would you manage that mesh of, of IPsec tunnels across a thousand locations? Well, the answer was we couldn't manage it in those days because we didn't have central control. And again, that's why when I started hearing about the idea of applying SDN ideas to the WAN, I was like, oh, so that cracks the problem we couldn't crack in, you know, 1996. See, we actually went down the route of the IPsec tunnels, but Ooh. we only had about we only had about twelve sites. Yeah. So we did it with Cisco. Um, we did it for a while, and then we swapped over to MPLS with NTT. It was just easier yeah. because we started getting more sites. We got to like 20, 25 sites. Um, but John, I've just looked at the clock. Yeah, I think um, you got a question to ask, Jay. I've actually got two questions. <laughs> so the first one is going to be. How do you pronounce router in Australia? Is it router or is it router? Yeah, so I'm I'm I mean I'm not the best person to ask on this because um, so the short answer is you you say router in Australia, um, and the and the reason is because it's rude to use the other word. Um, and I won't tell you what it translates to, but um, you can probably figure it out, and Google will will sort it out for you. So yeah. so you would definitely say router in in Australia, but. Um, you know, I used to work with Eric Rosen, who's one of the absolute pioneers in the field of routing, as he would have said. Um, and you know, he said, when you've worked in this field for as long as I have, you know how it's pronounced. So he was pretty adamant that it was um, routing, um, but he didn't live in Australia, so he didn't have to deal with people laughing if he'd uh, made that point. Because obviously, I mean, it's, it's, that's a question that I ask all the time, because every time John says it, I'm like, John, you're wrong, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> But my, my second question is going to be food related. I, I know that you've traveled all over the globe. You travel to loads of places. So it's not necessarily about food, but it's what's your best food experience been? And that could be the location, the people you were with or the food you ate. It could, it's like the whole experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, I, I did eat at a, a pretty memorable restaurant in um, uh the wine country of, of Northern California, uh, right? I think it was like literally the weekend before I met Martin Casado to discuss coming to, uh, to, to discuss coming to Nostira. So like I was, I was trying out California for size. And, uh, and so I had, I had this amazing weekend up in Healdsburg and uh, went out to this absolutely legendary restaurant that doesn't exist anymore. Um, had a 10 course vegetarian meal that involved a couple of grams of truffle shaved onto my risotto and um it was it was just a very very memorable and and you know not inexpensive meal uh so that's that's probably the, the one that i'd pick for the benefit of this story anyway yeah and i i changed the question because it used to be what's the best meal and actually for me thinking about it the food as isn't always great i mean i i went to peru I was up in the Andes or up in Peru in the mountains. I think it is the Andes, if I get that right. Um, and we had a great meal. And I don't necessarily remember what I ate. It was just 
great people, great scenery, great views. Um, so yeah, I feel I have to tell you a slightly different story now because um, one of the most memorable meals I've ever had was would have been hiking in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and uh, my, my wife and I did this this hike where we we just basically, you know, we started on, on the road between Jasper and Banff, middle of nowhere. Um, we hiked away from the road for two days and then camped for a couple of days and then hiked back. We saw zero people for, for several days. And the biggest risk we had was we were going to get attacked by grizzlies. Um, and so when you when you went to bed at night, you had to get every food scrap off the ground up into a tree. And there was a very strong incentive to like eat everything that you'd cooked because <laughs> yeah. you just didn't want to have any food scraps bringing the bears around. So I do remember having this meal that we made from scratch that was um, corn dumplings in a uh, sort of spicy tomato soup. And uh, and I just absolutely pigged out on that, knowing that I was doing the best thing for our safety by just eating until I was really, really full. <laughs> that was I a great story. story. John, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, hey, thanks, Bruce, for the time, the insights. Uh, this was great and and awesome catching up with you on SASE, SDN, software-defined networking, Nasira, and all of that. So really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. It's been a treat. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge. <laughs>